please join me with a prayer, our prayer for illumination. O oh Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading today comes from Luke 21, 25 through 36. This is the word of God. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful where your hearts will be weighed down with the dis dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon you, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you, will, you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Thank you, Dave. I'd ask Petra and any of the children to come forward. Uh. You know, I have a really important question for you first. I actually don't know your name. What's your name? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel, I'm going to look at some pictures with you. Do you know my name, by the way? Petra. Yeah. So I have pictures for you. And do you want to like, tell the people what's on this picture? A bird. And what? Where is the bird? So how do you know that there is a bird? Because you can't actually see the bird yet, right? Where is the bird? In the egg. And what do you see on the egg? His beak. So the egg is cracking open, yes. right? And it tells us that very soon there will be a? Baby bird. Baby bird. Excellent. Good job. What's in this picture? A tree. What colors are the tree? Red and green. So what season is it about to be? Fall. Good. So the colors of the tree tell you that very soon it will be fall. You're doing great. What's this? An elf. 
Do you have an elf? And yes. So when the elf is on the shelf, we know that it will be trouble. <laughs> trouble as well. But what's going to happen soon when the elf is on the shelf? Christmas. Excellent. What's in this picture? A lady that's pregnant. How do you know she's pregnant? Because I see, I see how fat she is. Yeah, she has a very big belly, right? So very soon, this lady will have a? Baby. Fantastic. What's here? A car. Yeah. What's on the car? A fish. Have you seen that in real life? No. no? Do you know why people put that kind of fish on their car? No. no. So people do that, and if you look around, like when your mom is driving you somewhere, um, and you look around you, you will see that some people in New Jersey actually have that too. People do that to let other people know that they're Christians. So it's a little symbol that you can put on your car, or some people wear it like on the necklace, or you know they do a tattoo, um, and it's a way that you can tell other people that you're a Christian. Okay. So in all these pictures, we looked at the picture, and we knew that something was going to happen soon, right? A bird would uh, come out of the egg, it would be fall, it'll be Christmas soon, this mother will have a baby soon, and these people, it's not about soon, these people just want you to know that they're Christians. Yeah, so by looking at things, you can tell what's going to happen. And that's what today's Bible lesson is about. In today's Bible lesson in the sermon, God is um, inviting all of us to pay real close attention to things we see, like a crack in the egg, and then we know that something will happen soon. Shall we pray together? Yeah? You can pray after me, yeah? Dear God. Dear God. We thank you for today. We thank you for today. For our families. For our families. For our church family. For our church family. And for the ways in which you teach for the ways in which you teach, teach lessons, lessons through what happens through what happens all around us all around us amen, amen. thank you petra thank you danny may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's the first Sunday of the church calendar year, the first Sunday of Advent. We had our Advent reading and the lighting of the first candle in the Advent wreath, as is our custom, and as is the custom of many other denomination traditions as well. And now we think of Christmas as just four weeks away and with so much to do. We live in between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the, his second coming. And most of us feel a lot better about the first one. Christmas is about a baby, after all. And that makes everything easier. We know about babies. And so we know how to domesticate Christmas. We set up a creche, pin up a wreath, set out a poinsettia or two, Maybe we sing away in the manger. Altogether, we figure out how to manage Christmas so that the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay 
won't end up offending anybody. While we typically live with a fairly linear view of time, one event after the other, the church's liturgical and lectionary calendar is cylindrical, patterns of events repeating themselves. For this reason, the church year that begins in Advent puts in front of us passages about the end of history before moving later weeks to prepare us for the coming of the Christ child and the dawn of a new age. While this may explain why we begin Advent with the second half of an apocalyptic address by Jesus, the timeline may seem a bit off. Jesus is telling his followers, and that includes us Christians today, we should be alert, ready for the coming of the end. They and us should not be caught up in either the excessive pleasures or worries of the day, but rather remain watchful for his return. As Karl Barth said, and there goes to Mike, we can't fathom the second advent of Jesus Christ, and we stammer when we try to speak of it. I think I know what Barth meant. Part of our problem is that the Bible describes the return of our Lord in literature that's hard to interpret. The literature is apocalyptic, which means it's an unveiling of the world that lies beyond this world. It's a revelation that tells us about the transition from this age to the next, but the transition is rough. It's so full of emergency. According to the gospel scenario, everything breaks loose at the return of Jesus Christ. Nations go to war. Civilians run for cover. There's blood in the streets and famine in the fields. There are signs in the sky above, panic on the earth beneath, stars falling, people dying of fright. It's a whole drum roll of disaster. And then, in the midst of all the confusion, people will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. He's the incoming Lord. He's the oncoming Lord. He's got power to judge and power to save. And when he comes the second time, he will be too big to miss. At the end, he's God without disguise, as C.S. Lewis once wrote. God without disguise, who comes at us so unmistakably that he will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It's the climax of the human drama. Christ is coming to finish what he started. Christ is coming to gather his saints and vindicate his martyrs. In this event, so we Christians confess, in this climatic event, all the hopes and fears of all the years come together one last time. So why does the second coming make some of us squirm? What is it about the topic that makes us uneasy? One thing is that we don't know how to read the literature, and in particular, we don't know how literal to read it. 
Another thing is that the church has been expecting Jesus to return for a long time. And he hasn't done it yet. It's hard to stand on tiptoes for 2,000 years, says William Willimon. And so after a while, people settle down. They settle into a kind of everydayness in their faith. And they quit scanning the horizon. The way this plays out for most Catholics and professing confessional Protestants is in a kind of interim faith, a common sense Christianity that stays fairly close to the ground. We don't deny the big booming events such as the second coming, but we don't think about them very much either. We've still got church and sacraments. After all, we've got scripture and prayer. We've still got the golden rule and the Ten Commandments. We've got Christian pop music to make us feel right at home in the world. And every week we faithfully spend some of our money and time on kingdom causes. That's ground level Christianity. And it's just enough religion to keep us going. Why does the second coming make us restless? We have trouble with the literature, as I said. Also, we can't figure out God's schedule. And that bothers us. I think the truth is a lot of us have been secularized enough by now that our view of the world has flattened out. And in the second advent of Jesus Christ doesn't fit into a flattened out world very well. It's too fantastic. It's too supernatural. In certain moods, we think it's too embarrassing. It's an embarrassing advent, and so we leave it to those embarrassing Christians who have turned apocalyptic speculation into a billion-dollar industry. Prophecy buffs with their computer charts and wrong predictions that are then folded back into new predictions in the kind of prophetic improvisation that some now have called apocalyptic jazz. Prophecy buffs clicking away with their pocket calculators and premillennial preachers who spin a Camp David peace summit in such a way that it appears to rise right off the pages of Ezekiel. How alarming is all of this? How alarming to read those bumper stickers that say, Beam me up, Lord. How distressing to see four-color pictures of the rapture, complete with wrecked cars and crashed jetliners. Some of us confessional Protestants encounter such thing in fellow believers. But we're Calvinists. We're reformed, for heaven's sake. And that means we've got our dignity. We've got eschatological chastity. We've got restraint. You know, different Christian groups have different fruits of the Spirit. Premillennial dispensationalists have one fruit, and we confessional Calvinists and Lutherans have another. They have joy. We've got self-control. Some of us are uneasy about the second coming. But let me ask, is it better to ignore the Lord's return? Is it better to live with a low ceiling over our lives? And no room there for the incoming Lord? We may be sorts of people that Jesus warned in our passage. Watch, says Jesus. Heads up. Be alert. 
Pray that you will have the strength to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says this to people who have given up on the second coming and have settled into ground-level religion. At this level, their hearts get waterlogged. Their hearts get weighed down, as in verse 34. Here are people of God who weigh themselves down with worldly anxieties and then relieve themselves with worldly amusements. Jesus mentions drunkenness in his particular uh, verse. People worry, so they get drunk. They get drunk, so they worry. And that makes them want to drink. It's the classic addictive cycle. People try to relieve their distress with the same thing that caused it. And that's how they end up trapping themselves. Watch, says Jesus. Be alert, he says. Jesus says this because his return isn't an apocalyptic fireworks display. His return is the coming of the kingdom of God. It is the coming of justice to the earth. When the signs appear, Jesus says to a temple filled of, full of listeners, don't give up. Don't freeze up. When these things begin to take place, stand up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. In Luke 21, Jesus is talking to people who know about redemption. These are Exodus people. These are Passover people. These people have a history of being squeezed by Egypt, by Babylon, and Rome. To these people, redemption is the longing of their hearts. They want Rome off their backs. They want Caesar out of their hair. It's their dream. It's their passion. The coming of God's redemption means justice is coming. Liberation is coming. The king of all the earth is coming. When biblical people want God's redemption, they cry out, Oh God, rescue me, deliver me, bend your ear towards me, O God, and in your righteousness save me. Psalm 71. Do we know anything about such passion? I'm thinking that when life is good, our prayers for the kingdom get a little faint. We whisper our prayers for the kingdom so that God can't quite hear them, if that's possible. Thy kingdom come, we pray, and hope it won't. Thy kingdom come, we pray, but not right away. When our own kingdom has had a good year, we aren't necessarily looking for God's kingdom. When life is good, Redemption doesn't sound so good. That's how things go. God's redemption is good news for people whose life is bad news. If you are a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or a slave in Antebellum, Mississippi, you want your redemption. If you're an Israelite in Babylon or a Kosovar in exiled in Albania, you want your redemption. According to scripture, the person who wants redemption wants the kingdom of God, whether they know it or not. 
And the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king, the one who will return with power and with great glory. However are we to understand this apocalyptic event, whatever form it takes, the second coming of Jesus Christ means to a Christian that God's righteousness will at last fill the earth. People with crummy lives want it to happen now. If you're a Christian in sub-Saharan Africa today, you don't yawn when somebody mentions the return of Jesus Christ. When the AIDS epidemic has devastated whole populations, you want your redeemer. You want the one who has healing in his wings. Passionate Christians want the return of the Lord, and so do compassionate ones. When our own life is sweet, we can look across the world to lives that aren't sweet. We can raise our heads and our hopes for those lives. We can weep with those who weep and hope with those who hope. We can look across the world and across the room and across the pew. It's natural to hope for ourselves and how healthy it is to do it. But it's unnatural to hope only for ourselves and how easy it is to do that. Be on guard, Jesus says, that you don't get weighed down with worldly anxieties and worldly amusements to relieve them. Be on guard that fatal absorption with yourself. Take care. Stay alert. Stand up. Raise your heads because the kingdom is coming. Jesus' words are an antidote for us, an antidote for our worldly cynicism, an antidote even to our scorn of prophecy buffs. Calvinists aren't into end times prophecy as other denominations are. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. Did you know that almost 33% of the Bible is prophecy? That's right, almost one-third of the Word of God. You know there are over a hundred prophecies that were predicting Jesus' birth? How many were fulfilled? Bob? <laughs> How many were fulfilled? All. Every single one was fulfilled. And Jesus' second coming is also prophesied in the Bible. This time, this is prophesied over 500 times. And you know those prophecy scholars and buffs? Well, they'll tell you that way more than 60% of those prophecies have been fulfilled. And when I read that, that was a number of years ago. Think God's trying to tell us something? Something so important that he made sure that anyone reading the Bible would have to read about Jesus' second coming? Jesus even talked about it, about our redemption, about wanting our Redeemer to return. Jesus' words are meant to raise our heads, raise our hopes. Could justice really come to earth? Could husbands quit beating their wives? And could wives quit blaming themselves? 
Could Arabs and Israelis look into each other's eyes and see brother or sister? Could some of us who struggle with addiction or with disease that trap us, could we be liberated by God and start to walk tall in the kingdom of God? Could Jesus Christ appearing among us in some way that our poverty-stricken minds could never imagine in a scenario that would simply erase our smug confidence about where the lines of reality are drawn? If we believe in the kingdom of God, we will pray. And we will hope for those without much hope left. And one more thing, one more tough thing. We will work in the same direction as we hope. In a book entitled Standing on the Promises, Lewis Smedes says that hoping for others is hard, but not the hardest. Praying for others is hard, but not the hardest. The hardest part for people who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ is living the sort of life that makes people say, ah, so that's how people are going to live when righteousness takes over our world. The hardest part is simple faithfulness in our work and in our attitudes, the kind of faithfulness that shows we are being drawn forward by the magnetic force of the kingdom of God. According to a story some 220 plus years ago, the Connecticut House of Representatives was in session on a bright day in May. And the delegates were able to do their work by natural light. But then something happened that nobody expected. Right in the middle of debate, the day turned to night. Clouds obliterated the sun and everything turned to darkness. Some legislators thought it was the second coming. So a clamor arose. People wanted to adjourn. People wanted to pray. People wanted to prepare for the coming of the Lord. But the Speaker of the House had a different idea. He was a Christian believer, and he rose to the occasion with good logic and good faith. We are all upset by the darkness, he said, and some of us are afraid. But the day of the Lord is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. And if the Lord is returning, I, for one, the speaker said, choose to be found doing my duty. I therefore ask that candles be brought in, and the men who expected Jesus went back to their desks and resumed their debate. What would you do today if you knew Jesus was coming back today? I once heard about an old-time evangelist who was asked that question. And he said without hesitation, I'd plant a tree. The interviewer said, why would you plant a tree for Jesus' second coming? Because that's what, what I was going to do today. Talk about someone ready. Someone who talked the talk and walked the walk, he was ready. Nothing to hide if you could hide something from God. Didn't have to go put his house in order or anything like that. He was living his life 
like the end of our scripture lesson last week instructs us to. The preacher, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, don't stop meeting together as believers for worship and instruction, as is the habit of some, but admonishing, warning, urging, and encouraging one another, and all the more faithfully, as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. Be alert, ready for the second for the coming of the end. Don't be caught up in either excessive pleasures or worries of the day, but rather remain watchful for his return. Stand up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Brothers and sisters, what do you seek? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your words to us today. May we reflect on them now and use this time to empower us to stand up, raise our heads, remain watchful, because your kingdom is one day closer to being today than it was yesterday. Come, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. If you're able, will you stand with me for our affirmation of faith uh, as it's found on the screen or in the bulletin. It's from one of our Reformed Church standards, our Song of Hope, and this is section 3. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. After we refuse to live the image of God, he was born of the Virgin Mary, sharing our genes and our instincts, entering our culture, speaking our language, fulfilling the law, being united to Christ's humanity. We know ourselves when we rest in him. Come, Lord Jesus. We are open to your spirit. We await your full presence. Our world finds rest in you alone. 